29. Uh, if you've come more than once, then you may have noticed something um, that I hope that Doxa will be <coughs> talking about building into our DNA and who we are and what we're about and our values. Um, one thing that we, we will be is, by God's grace, we'll be a, a Bible church. We'll be a church that's centered around the scriptures and what, what the scriptures say and what the scriptures teach. And that seems to be something very obvious, but I remember uh, Megan and I had been going to, um, over a certain amount of time, uh, two or three different churches, and um, they were pretty good churches. You know, they people full of, full of people who love Jesus. Um, but we started going to a uh, a new church, and our first Sunday there, there was a sound there that uh, was a difference. Like it was like a, a sound that from your memory, but you hadn't heard in a while. And what it was was when the pastor would say, "Turn to," we're going to look in Jeremiah twenty nine. You hear all the pages rustling. And that's not about people actually bringing a book. You can bring an app. You, can, you don't have to bring a Bible if you don't like to. But the point is, we're going to be a church that's centered around what the scriptures say. Because honestly, and if you've been around me any at all, you know this is true. It really doesn't matter what I say. Um, what I say is of very little significance and is of very little value. What really matters is what God says. And that as believers and as people in general is what we should be building our lives around. So that's going to be a key point. Every time that we gather, we're going to be looking at the scriptures and see what the scriptures say. What does God have to say to us through the scriptures? Um, So that's going to be one of the big values. That's really wrapped up in the the value, the first value, which is Jesus. We're going to be all about him. Um, If uh, he's the one for whom we are created by whom we were created, and it is only, uh, St. Augustine said, um, he had a quote, he said, our hearts are restless. No, our hearts are made for thee, and they are restless till they find rest in thee. And the picture there is that we were made by Jesus and for Jesus, and we will find no rest apart from him. And the history of Civilization is a history of people searching and yearning and looking for something, that something or some things that will satisfy and will provide value and security for their life. And there's only one place that can be found, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is that we respond to him in worship in all of life is worship. In fact, it's not just the life of a Christian, but it's the life of anybody. Any, anybody that you know, their life is a life of worship. They find something or some things of value. And the way that we are put together as human beings, when we find something of value, we cannot help but to respond and worship to it. We give ourselves to it. We uh, value it. We become like it because we become like what we worship. And so um, that entails me growing as a believer, growing in the way that I am a father and a husband and a business owner and a neighbor. And every part of my life, every part of my life, there's not a part of my life 
that Christ doesn't claim is his. And whenever I find him to be of ultimate value, it's not a sacrifice for me to give my life to him. It is, it is a pleasure for me to give my life to him, every part of it. And then we live in community, and then that's, that's where a deep sharing of each other's lives. And then we live on mission, and that's what we're talking about um, tonight. We're going to be talking about how we're a city within a city, which we t- started last week. We're going to talk about how, what sh- effect should we have on the city around us, and what should our view to civilization, the community that's around us, what should that be like? Um, when I've been describing what we're doing here through the summer and going into the fall of having these, what we call our beta gatherings, which is us getting together, building the DNA of who we are. I've been using an example of, uh, it's like a, a woman who gets, who gets pregnant and there's a gestation period of that baby and that DNA is already there, already deciding that he's going to be able to grow a beard or it's going to be splotchy like mine or male pattern baldness like Wombat was alluding to before the before we started or whatever whatever your background is whatever it is that makes you who you are that was determined before you ever popped out of your mother but the thing is through the whole nine month period where that baby is inside his mom it looks like a quiet period like you see some changes from the outside but you don't really see all that's going on. In truth, there's a lot of stuff going on. And that's the period of time that we are in. It's, it looks from the outside like a quiet period, but there's a lot of stuff going on as, as a God. And we are trying to put together, put in place the, um, the vital organs that will make this baby able to survive. And it'll make this baby who it will be. And the key part of that we're going to look at tonight in Jeremiah 29. Look in verse 4. What had happened was uh, Judah had strayed from God, and God had, provide, had um, provided a lot of opportunity for them to turn around and go the other way. Uh, but finally, in his mercy, uh, he actually turned them over to the, Bab- to the Babylonians. Um, the Babylon was the great and mighty empire of its day. It was, in some ways, it was the first world-class empire um, it was I mean, the military prowess. The city was a wonder of the world. It was crazy. And they come on the doorstep of Judah and they take Judah into captivity as God said that they would. And what happened was when, God, when they brought the people back to Babylon, um, they were free to live there and be a part of, they weren't slaves. They were free to be a part of civilization because what Babylon tried to do, it was kind of a, a new idea at the time is, we're not just going to conquer you and kill you all. We're going to bring you back to uh, our city and we're going to indoctrinate you into our way of thinking and our way of doing things. And so they bring the Jews to Babylon and what the Jews say is, all right, all right here's what we're going to do. Because God has called us to be his people um, we're, if we have to live here, we'll live here, but we're not going to live in Babylon. We're going to live outside Babylon. We're going to have our own little community, and we're going to be we're going to worship the way we want to worship and live life the way we want to worship, and just going to wait. Just God promised that even though He was taking us into captivity, eventually He's going to send us back to Jerusalem and Judah, and so we're just going to wait it out. We're going to hunker down, go into survival mode, and then. When God finally frees us to go back, that's what we're going to do. And the wise people of 
The Jewish nation said, this is exactly what you should do. But God writes a letter to the Jews through Jeremiah and tells them something different. And you see in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But, and this is the really revolutionary sentence, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare now there would not have been a city or civilization on earth at the time that would have been much more opposite of the of the jews than the babylonian empire Uh, in every way their values were exact opposite of the jews they were very they were they were bloodthirsty Evil men, their, their war tactics were horrendous. The way they would, uh, even though they would bring some people back in, the people that they, that they would kill in warfare, it was, it was absolutely horrendous. And yet God says, seek the welfare of this city to which I've sent you in exile. For thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 8, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Those are the ones that were saying, we're just going to hang out here and we're not going to, we're going to be separate. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This is the famous verse out of this chapter, but we always take it out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So the picture that we're going to draw from this is like, what should, um, what should the church look like in the greater community that we're a part of? And I contend that the church should look like a city within a city. We talked about that talked about that last week, about how we each have been given natural gifts that we have. Some have a lot, some have a few. I have very, very, very few gifts. Some people I know have, they're like, have a plethora, like they have a a backpack full of gifts. And that's awesome for them. They can sing and they're artistic and they're, you know, all the different things. I, I have very, very, very limited number of gifts, but I have I have everybody has at least 
something that God has given you naturally that you can do, that you're passionate about doing, that you stirs your heart and stirs your soul. And we talked about last week how there is no separation between what we might call church work and secular work. That, that if God has called you to be a teacher, then he's called you to be a teacher for the glory of God. If God's called you to be an artist, he's called you to, to paint. And all the paintings don't have to be of the cross. Like, if you want to, that's, that's awesome. But if God stirs your heart to paint sunrises and sunsets and write music about, um, about laughter and love, then, then do so, but do it for the glory of God. That God has, the, the, the beautiful thing about that is that God has sanctified every element of your life. And he's called you to use that for his glory in worship. And then we also talk about how he has given everybody at least one, some people, again, multiple spiritual gifts. And that the spiritual gifts are, uh, are ways that the Holy Spirit ministers to each other through each other. So, like, the way that, the way that you become a believer is through only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It's all the work of God, none of your work can ever draw you close to God. None of your work can ever make you righteous before God. It's only what he has done. In the same way, he's the one that does the ministering in the body of Christ. He hasn't called you to minister to me or me to minister to you. He's only said, be obedient to me and be a vessel to let me minister to Chelsea and Chelsea minister to me through each other. God's spirit through Chelsea and God's word through Chelsea to me and vice versa. That's the picture of a community, of a city within a city. So that, the way that that works is that the church should be not just full of full-time ministers who like to sit around and study the Bible all day and drink coffee and meet with people. Like the, the community of faith should be filled with people who actually work and get their hands dirty and are out, you know, giving people money and taking people's money and people who are trying to sell people books and nooks and people who flew the president. Like, that should that's pretty awesome, by the way. I'll let you guys figure out who that was later on. Um, that, that we should operate as a city within the larger city so that when people look from outside, there's something that looks familiar about it. Like, they see teachers, they see uh, bankers, they see people who are selling books, they see people who own businesses, but, but it operates totally differently than the world outside. A totally different set of values, a totally different set of, a uh, totally different culture that springs from the fact that we all have a totally new birth when we become believers. So we should operate like a city within the greater city. Jesus said, when he compared us, he to the, to the world, he said, you're a city set on a hill. And we talked about how that is a lot of different buildings, a lot of different windows that make up a city. You don't have to, he didn't call me to be like the great lighthouse that stands on the, the hill and just shines a great giant beacon out to everybody and says, look how awesome I am, come follow Jesus. No, they look and they see lots of smaller twinkling windows. Lots of normal people living normal quiet, godly lives that stand out like a light in the middle of the darkness. 
But he hasn't just called us to be a city within a city. There's, there's two elements to being a city within a city. One is um, separateness. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use that as a word. Separateness, that we are separate. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. It is a word? All right, good. You'll also find that uh, I like to make up words. It's a hobby of mine that drives some people crazy. Ephesians chapter 1, look in verse, by the way, Ephesians 1. It may be my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Paul, like, sat down to write this letter to the, to the church in Ephesus. And whenever he put Paul, an apostle, like, he's starting out the letter, like, he just, he had so much to say to him. He, he was so excited about Jesus. It's like he just threw up all over the page. It's, just, it's like one big, giant run-on sentence. It, just, it doesn't really make sense in a way, because he's just throwing out phrase after phrase after phrase like a machine gun. It's like a gospel machine gun. like, And it's just, I mean, it's like drinking from a fire hose, but it's awesome. This may be the first book of the Bible that we work through on Sunday mornings. But look in verse um, 13. In him, that's Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, how are we, what, what, are the, what are the attributes of being sealed, do you think? What, 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 are, what does that mean? What are the, what's the attributes of a seal? What does a seal do if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit? Like a seal on a package, like there's nothing that's going to get in and nothing gets out. Absolutely. Nothing, well, nothing that could come in to damage whatever's inside the package, make it go full before it's time. Absolutely. A seal, one of the things it does is it secures or it preserves so that whenever you go to the store and you need some medicine and you buy that bottle of Tylenol and you open it up, there's a, after you get through the, the childproof cap and when you get underneath that, what's, what's left there? A seal. And what is that seal telling you? It had to come open. That's right. It's a tamper-proof seal. I don't, back in the 80s, before they started sealing the bottles, like there, was, there were outbreaks that they would be tampered with. And they weren't sure. Like Sometimes it happened in the stores. Sometimes it happened in the factory. Somewhere between the store and the factory, somebody put something in the pills, put something in the bottle, and people were getting sick and dying from taking like Tylenol because it wasn't sealed and protected. And so now when you open it up, you know this bottle has not been tampered with. It's... It's safe. Have you ever seen pictures of um, like the way they can Coke or Pepsi or soda products? Um, the, it's this super fast moving line, and the you have the the can without the top on it, and it goes through this wash because actually Coke had a deal where they their cans got tampered with at the factory, and people got sick 
from the tampering in the Coke. This is also back in the 80s, I believe. And so they changed their, their line so that the can comes through and it gets washed. And then as soon as it leaves the wash, it turns it upside down. And it goes upside down until it immediately right before it gets filled up. And that's so that nothing can get in the can to contaminate it between the wash and the, the Coke goodness or Pepsi terribleness going in there at the next step. And then it is stamped immediately with the top. So you know whenever you crack it open, this thing has not been tampered with. And that's the way that we as a church, as the people of God, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are secured in him. Whenever you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you repent of your sins and he makes you a new person, you are sealed and protected. You are tamper resistant until heaven. He himself has made sure they will not fall away. I'll be honest with you, if that was not going on, I, am, I don't know if next week I would be in trouble, but certainly by the end of this year, I would be in a lot of trouble. God's power and his presence of his Holy Spirit daily, moment by moment, is what is keeping me in the hand of God. And that is sure. It doesn't depend on what you have done or what anybody around you does. You are sealed by the seal. The, the medicine inside that Tylenol bottle doesn't have anything to do with making it to your house and being all right. It's the seal that keeps it safe. What else does the seal do? Marks who belongs to Absolutely. The seal shows ownership, like a brand on the side of a cow. And you have been branded so that anyone around you knows to whom you belong. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have been shown, God has said, this child belongs to me. What does that mean? If, 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 if somebody messes with that, you know, cows are pretty stupid. If, so they don't, they're not very good at like resisting thieves or anybody that would try to come in and harm them. But when you mess with one of those cows, if you steal one of them, are you answerable to that cow? Even if you are, it doesn't really matter much. I mean, the cow just like just kind of stands there. What? But who are you answerable to? What? Who are you really contending with when you when you take that cow? You take the owner, the rancher, absolutely. It's exactly like a sheep and a shepherd. But some of you here are very familiar with. <laughs> Absolutely. And so it marks ownership. And then it does something else. It, um, can you think of anything else that a seal does? So the seal? Oh, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I was thinking about saying it. Something about the beach ball or no? That would be 
out of context. Yeah, that would be out of context. <laughs> if you guys can draw some spiritual analogy from that, you can be welcome to. The, the other thing I'm looking for is that a seal authenticates something as being true or real. Um, Beth is a, a paralegal, and she does real estate closings. And part of what you have to do is you have, if, it's, if the notary is from out of state, that their signature has to be sealed with a notary seal in order to show that that is what? It's authentic. It's, a re, it's real. And so in that way, God has sealed us to authenticate that he is true and he is real in what he's doing. And so in, in one way, we are separate from the world as we're a city within a city. So how, in what ways should we, and this is not rhetorical, in what ways should we look separate and be separate from the rest of the world around us? If we're a city within a city, how should we look, be separate from, separate from the people around us, or the civilization around us? I would say that separateness has to show how we move through our many Christian couples are getting divorced, and especially longer marriage. And if, as a Christian, I, I don't see how you can come to that place, because that's the world standards. That's not the picture God gives us of marriage, you know? And so I think that as Christians, we're supposed to follow God's standards, not the world's standards, and that's what should show us a separate. Absolutely. I think um, when, you, when you look at a lot of the stats of um, marriage inside, outside the church, family inside and outside the churches, it's almost lockstep with society in general. There's, there's very little difference. It's actually worse. Some of the statistics show that the divorce rate in, in church is higher than it is in the world. Some of the more recent ones. So, like... Our value system, how we view marriage and family, should look different. It should be separate in that we don't, we're not going to rely upon what the world says is true and good. We're going to follow a different standard. What else? How should we look different or separate? Not just look different, but how should we be separate? I mean, the way we do things, like if someone in the world, like, what are you doing? Like, it shouldn't make sense to them. But it makes sense to us because we know who we serve. And when we explain it to them, they're like, what? So it's like, it, it should be like a mind-boggling thing. Like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And, like, our lives should be that different to where they have no earthly idea what you're talking about. Mm. It should be a completely different language to them. Mm. Like, just as if I had started to learn Spanish or French or anything, it, it's going to be mind-boggling to me because I've never actually been in that culture or know anything about it. So it, it things aren't going to make sense to me. Right. Because that's how they do it. And I don't understand because that's not what I do. So God's standards are not going to be the world's standards. Therefore, it's not going to make sense. Hmm. And at the same time, there should be an intrigue and an attraction to that 
not just a repulsiveness. Like, yeah. You know, sometimes we see within the church is there's a repulsiveness, and we think that we're different, and so therefore, if you're repulsed by my, the way I just do things different, that that means I'm a Christian, but really it's the beauty of Christ in us. He, he attracts us. He attracts people who don't understand that thing that we do and intrigues those people who are outside to inquire and want to know what it is. And you see that in the book of Acts. You see um, several phrases where it'll talk about how the people outside of the church were like looked inside with like, like some type of fear or awe. But, but yet it also says they had favor with all the people. And people kept becoming believers every single day because even though they didn't understand it, so you, anything you don't understand, you look at it with a little bit of fear or uncertainty, but there was something that was attractive to them about it. How should we be separate? I think everything we do um, should be done with excellence and integrity. And then as opportunities present itself whenever you're, you know, because sometimes... I try to be really sensitive whenever the Lord tells me to and he tells me not to. But when somebody asks you, oh my gosh, that was a really great idea. How'd you get that? And you're like, oh, well, I just prayed about it. That's what I felt like the Lord let me, you know, let me to do. And it turns some people off. I had that opportunity last year because I was doing some stuff with technology in my classroom. The district was like, oh, that's awesome. And so I really didn't say anything. And finally the lady from the district came to me. She's like, where do you get these good ideas? And I was like, oh, I pray about it. Feel like I do what the Lord told me to, and she's never contacted me since. I know, but I did. I I just felt like, you know, I had to give the glory because it wasn't me, you know. But we should do things with excellence and integrity. And when I guess this morning, Mr. Ronnie brought up Tintivo, like when the light gets shined on you, you know, you give the glory to where it belongs. It's not over spiritual, you know, weird, but you just you just give the glory where it, where it's deserved, where it really comes from. Sure. I was thinking of uh, it should be different in our conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. That how we resolve conflict. Christians fight all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but how we how we handle that? How um, I think if we understand the tenacity of God's love for us, and that His endless pursuit of us. And, and how, how great we need that, then we will tenaciously pursue reconciliation with one another, which our tendencies, apart from Christ, in our nature, is always just to isolate and split. You know, that's our tendency. I mean, because it's, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's hard, it's easier to just go your separate ways and friendships or relationships or whatever, but I think when we under, again understand how how much he pursues us, we can't help but to pursue reconciliation and love between our brothers and sisters. And that's very different than what I would want to do in my own self and very different from the world standards. Yeah, the Christian life isn't a pie in the sky like fluffy cloud, people always smiling kind of life. Like it's full of like real lifeness. I mean, you even have again the Book of Acts. Like we have record. Like there was a 
several arguments break out in the church. Like the, the, people, the, the Greek Jews don't feel that their widows are getting taken care of. And so they raise a stink and there's a big church meeting and it all has to, people are like arguing back and forth. They have to figure out what to do. Paul at one time, he wants to, he, he says, I don't want this guy to come along with this. And uh, Barnabas says, no, he should come with this. And they said, well, they, it got so contentious. They said, well, you just go your way. I'll go my way. Like that's like the Christian life is full of like real life stuff, but it's the way that we work through that that makes us stand out, that makes us different than the world around us. Any other thoughts? One thing that I've run into in life is that most people have a story about themselves and they want somebody to listen. And if you if you have a heart towards God and and you can get away from needing to share your own story that and you can just accept people and listen to what they have to say. A lot of times God gives you opportunity to input in people um, just just from your interaction and just even just listening to them sometimes can be the biggest thing that you know the outside world doesn't get because our our generation is so me focused. Um, I think that's what God calls us to do is get away from ourselves and be uh, all about me. So that we can interact with the world around us in a way that's uncommon, you know, and that it speaks to people, you know. True interest in somebody else is uncommon. That definitely stands out. People at first often don't know how to react to it because they, they're trying to figure out what your angle is and what you're doing, what's going on. But if it's truly disinterested or not self-interested uh, care, it really stands out. I think that's a big a big thing that she said, too, about not being me-focused. It's in the world we live in today. I mean, trust me, I teach them at little, you know, 10-year-olds. And being very me-focused and all about me, I mean, the world is really, really about that. And I think that's the, for personally, for me, that's the strongest thing I, I deal with every day. I think being others-focused, Christ-centered, you know, so therefore others focus and not me focus. That really, really, really sets you apart sure. from everybody else. Absolutely. Because I've seen people, just, you know, just people around me where I work, and I see them do really, really nice things, but there's an angle. I know I'm looking at them and thinking, you're doing that because you want them to do this for you later or because you want that to get noticed by somebody else. Sure. And they're like, oh, they're so nice. And I'm like, no, they're not. <laughs> they got an angle. Right. So, you know, so... There's always kind of been two camps in the church, and they have thought back and forth through the years. And one is the camp of the separateness, the people who say we should be separate. And so kind of the temptation with that group is we don't want to be tainted by the world. We want to be so far away, removed from the world, that we want to make sure that either I won't trip or I won't be tainted by anybody around me. And so we want to, we want to come into our church and not be... <coughs> not have anything from outside there or we want to kind of cloister off and live in a neighborhood with only other Christians and go to school only with other Christians and go to church only with other Christians and so I never have to be around anything that's bad and so we're seeing like there's an element to, to like what we are called to be in that, that we're called to be separate but also we're called to be sent and so the second, second point is the sentness of the church. Look at, and that's not a word, I'm pretty sure. First Peter 2, 9. 
1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race. He's talking to the church. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. And whenever you see the word holy in the scripture, what it means is a people set apart. It doesn't mean necessarily that you are like a bunch of goody two-shoe people. It means that you have been set apart. So you are a nation, a people set apart. And that's what he says, a people for God, for his own possession. That's God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We didn't plan that. Um, (laughs) but so he says that we're a holy nation a set apart nation but look at um, look at this that harkens back to Deuteronomy verse uh, chapter 7 jump back there if you will Deuteronomy 7, 1. And this is what God told the people of Israel whenever they are coming into the promised land. That's full of a bunch of people who do not worship God. And so listen to this and contrast it in your mind with the passage from Jeremiah 29 that we just read. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, when you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So it sounds a little bit different than the section in Jeremiah 29 we read, right? Where it said, seek good of the people, marry, right? Seek the welfare of the city that you're in. Here he's saying, like, absolutely destroy every city, kill everybody that's in it, have no mercy upon them. What, what do you think is the, is the difference between those two? Why on one would he say, kill them all, show no mercy? And the other he says, seek the welfare of the city that you're in. I think, I'll tell you what I think. I I think that the difference is when he sent them to Babylon, he sent them as exiles into Babylon. He sent them in subjection under another people. And so in that instance, he was saying, I want you to seek the welfare. I, I have sent you here underneath them. Therefore, Seek the welfare of the city that you are in, for in it you will find your welfare, and I am coming back for you, and I will bring you out of exile. Look at, turn back to, I forgot to tell you to keep your finger in First Peter, but turn back to that section in First Peter, and let's look and see um, what he says. 
Back in 1 Peter 2, uh, he called us a holy nation, a, a people for his own possession. And then verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and what? Exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are, not only are we called to be separate from, but we are called to be sent to the people that we are in the middle of. We are exiles and sojourners. Um, that, that word there in the original Greek um, doesn't mean that, uh, it means a people, it would mean like somebody who, who is not from the United States and they still have citizenship in whatever country they come from, but they come to the United States and they settle here. They're not a citizen of the U.S., but they, are a, but they live here and have settled here. They are part of the community here, and that's what we are called to be as a city within the city, that we're called to be separate from because we are different from, but we're called to be, that we are sent to them. We are, that's why he's called us to seek the good of the city that we're in the greater community that we're a part of. So that the picture is that the community that we're in should be better off because we are here. Even, even if people do not come to know him, their life should be better off in the meantime because we are here. Because we are like an uh, outpost in the middle of Indian, of Indian, in the middle of, of enemy territory, showcasing a different set of values, a different culture, because we are of a different birth. That's why we are a city within a city. We are separate from, but we are sent to. We don't, aren't just a cloister off away. We're supposed to seek how can we, um, how can we as ambassadors, how can we as members of the new kingdom that is coming? Because he said here, and he's, he points to here, and he says back in Jeremiah 29 how he's going to come and take them out of exile. And the picture is it's only, we're only passing through. He's going to come and he's going to bring us out one day. But until that day, we are showcasing the new kingdom that is here because we're here but is not yet here because he's not yet here like he will be. Does that make sense? So how practically as sojourners and exiles, and, and, and notice there that he doesn't say the, the difference between the old way, whenever he told him to go and kill everybody, and then now us exiles is that the change doesn't come through political power. It doesn't come through military might. It doesn't come from us trying to stretch our muscles and show how powerful Christians are in America. What muscles should we be using? Spiritual, Spiritual muscles. Muscles of love. Muscles of, of mercy and grace. Things that run counter culture. We're not fighting a culture war with the prevailing powers of our day. No, we're, we're living lives of love and humility and grace and mercy. That's the way his kingdom advances. That showcases the new kingdom. So how are some 
practical ways, if we're talking about ways that we are separate from, how should we be, how should we be exhibiting individually and corporately our sentness in the middle of the city? Um, I listened to recently a, a message series following the called Wide Awake, and it's really changed my life a lot. But the last one, the second sermon was talking about walking with Jesus every day. And it's just real, I mean, I know that's really simple, but it really does, like, help me personally. And um, I think, I think, and he told a story about, but anyway, he was just talking about how when you walk with Jesus every day, that's just all that you have to do, that's it. And just always being open to what he's doing that day. Is there somebody that he wants you to talk to? Is there somebody that, you know, that he, that's hurting, that he wants you to, to comfort? Because um, he just told a story about how he was out in the middle of the night and there was this homeless man and normally people are like, you know, and he just felt like God had told him to, to, to stop and take a few moments and speak to him. And, and um, I mean, that just really hit me. And, and so I think our sentness is just walking with Jesus every single day and every single moment and just being aware and to that, that voice on the inside when God tells you um, maybe something simple like, let so-and-so know that she looks really pretty today because she may have never heard that before. You know, just being really sensitive to the people that he wants to touch through things that I can do or, or say uh, to people around me. Very good. Anybody else? Any thoughts? How, should, how does that look? whatever I'm doing as a part of my life as a missionary is a way different way of thinking about life for most people. We, we tend to have that separation that we talked about between what is spiritual and what is sacred. I mean, what, is, what is sacred and what is secular. But God has no difference in the way that we treat family and friends. I had an uncle one time tell me, you know, that, you know, this is your family, but this is business, and uh, and that that's all fine and good. But the, the, the and I've heard people say like, you know, that you're you know you're Christian, we're Christians, but this is business. And the problem is there can't be that dividing line. The way uh, I have to let my worldview, the way I view business and politics and relationships with other people, I have to let that affect all of that, color all of that. And just realizing that no matter like for me, you know, like. No matter where I work, the people I work around, it's not an accident. You know, I believe that God has put me at Peay Elementary for one, at least, hopefully, one more year. <laughs> you know, and that the, the, the grade level people that I'm with, you know, it's not an accident. The children that walk through my door on Wednesday, I really and truly believe that none of them are, have just by chance been put in my classroom. The intern I have from Coastal, like, I believe that she's been put in my life for a purpose for me to be able to build her up or, or something. That nobody is, if you believe you are, you are where God has called you to be, none of those people around you that you come in contact with 
that you're working with. He's put you there on purpose, on mission with those people that you're with. Absolutely. One thing I was thinking is that kind of along with Andrea says that you got to you, your life has to focus around God <coughs> because if you focus on how do I act in my place of employment or whatever, then it becomes about you, and so you really have to take your day every day and focus on God and what He's calling you to do because that's the only way you can live the Christian life. So. I think that's one of the things that you run into a lot of times, you know, with churches that want to have really sensitive to, you know, building friendships with things and stuff. I'm not saying that's not bad, but you, if you don't focus on God first, if you're just trying to do the mission, then you're going to miss the whole thing. Yeah, there, there are two things that, that, <coughs> that give me great encouragement, and one, one is that God is working. That, that God is the one who's on, it's his mission. And, and he said that he will affect the mission. Jesus said he will build his church. He didn't call you or me to build his church. He will build his church. And that's, that's his job. He's the one, we are talking before, like you, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, bring yourself to God. You couldn't make yourself righteous enough. Righteous enough. It had to be him that did it. And in that same way, like, you can't make somebody else believe in Jesus, right? right. It, that's his job to do that. So that should be a great encouragement that it's his deal. We just get, like, the awesome ability to join on the team with him. But the second thing that's great encouragement is he hasn't called me to do it all by myself. It's a city of a lot of other people within the larger city. But he's called us to be a community together on mission. And if I may drop the ball, but somebody else, God can engineer somebody else to come up behind me and to get the rebound and put it in the basket. That, that it's not all on me. God hasn't called a bunch of Michael Jordans. He's called a bunch of like role players. He's Steve Kerr's. That's, that, that's what he wants. He, he wants just the guy who just stands there and, you know, just do your job. Just do what I've called you to do and we'll be all right. He's the one that's Michael Jordan. I'm not. Um, so, UNC fan like that, that reference. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Father, I thank you that you have called us to be a um, mission with you. I thank you that you've called us to be a city that's within the larger city, that seeks the welfare of the city, that, that this area, the Myrtle Beach, Horry County, Grand Strand area should be, should be better off because we are here as a people that, that as, as not just Doxa grows, but as the church at large grows, as there are more believers in the area, that, that, this, that the, the community uh, should should be thankful that we are here because we're able, enabled by the spirit of God and the gospel to live lives that aren't built around ourselves and our own comfort and our own security, but are rather built around um, you. Um, that we can live lives of sacrifice because it's not really sacrifice if we, if we have you. Now, Father, I pray that you would um, by your spirit, 
uh, build into us individually and build into us together as a people um, that we would have that kind of separateness and that kind of sentness represented in our lives. And you said that you, you called us to live that kind of life for the praise of your glorious grace. God, make our lives lives of praise to your glorious grace. As we worship tonight, I pray you would open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see afresh and anew your beautiful, glorious grace. God, break our hearts again at your goodness and at your mercy. Let our knees become weak again by the overwhelming mercy that you have shown to us. Let us be overcome again by the beauty of your Son and the unbelievable wonder that you have called us your sons and your daughters. You have called us your own once we were not a people, but now we are a people for your own possession. Let that grip our hearts afresh and anew tonight. Help us not just to sing empty words, but to let them capture our hearts and our souls so that when we leave here, we would live lives of praise to your glorious, unimaginable, indescribable grace. In the name of Jesus.